Okay, so I apologize that I don't have a note-taking sheet for everybody, but basically your note-taking sheet was just the scripture references. Because I believe in thinking people note-taking sheets, not fill in the blank, because what I find is people can fill in the blank and come up with something much better than what I said. <laughs> so this basically, you know, preserves my dignity or something, I don't know. <clears throat> okay, come on in. We're going to get started here. I'm going to do a little bit of demographic research. Um, I want to know who I'm talking to. So if you are a professional retreat slash conference attender, meaning you have attended five or more retreats slash conferences, And now we'll have a contest to see who's attended more, Neil or myself. Probably Neil. <laughs> okay, so those are you are the you are the professionals. Now I'm sure we have wannabes among us who have attended between two and five conferences, retreats, etc. All right, the up and comers. Good. Hang in there, hang tough. You too can be Neil Walker. Then we have the newbies. Who how many for how many of you is this your first the first retreat? conference you've been to. Welcome, welcome. Resistance is futile. You will be assimilated if anybody knows where that comes from. Okay, so uh, fall conferences are really uh, have a special place in my heart. They had a big impact on me when I was a student and so I'm really, really glad that you are here. Um, my name is Emily Richardson. I'm the Christian Challenge Director at the University of Michigan and Eastern Michigan University and Washtenaw Community College. The real reason I'm here is to welcome USC to the big conference. Now, being schools like the University of Michigan and USC who pride ourselves with our intellectual prowess, I'm a bit concerned that you have joined the Big Ten and counting you, there are 15 of us. I'm just... Uh, somebody help me out with that. So anyway, um, my husband and I have been at the University of Michigan for 32 years. Um, before that, we did uh, college ministry at the University of Nebraska. That's where we graduated from uh, when we welcomed Nebraska to the Big Ten Conference. The, the N on the Nebraska helmet stands for knowledge. So we welcome the team who couldn't spell to the conference that can't count. Go figure. Okay. So, uh, but uh, we worked in Nebraska for seven years, um, and then we uh, came to start a ministry at the University of Michigan. And uh, a year and a half ago, my husband joined the staff of One Link International. Uh, one of our alumni stole him out from under me, and uh, that's how I stepped into this role. So, anybody wanting to come to Michigan and uh, have this kind of weather? year-round. Welcome. We're, we have seasons. You have seasons too. They're just differently displayed. So uh, I graduated from uh, the University of Nebraska with a degree in nursing and I went overseas for a couple of years and taught in a nursing school and worked in a bush hospital out in the middle of nowhere um, in the delta of Nigeria. It was a life-changing, awesome, awesome, third most fabulous decision I made correctly in my life. And uh, just, uh, you'll hear some stories about that. 
came back to uh, Nebraska, married my husband. We worked with students in Nebraska, went to Michigan, where we had five kids. And the blessing of having kids is sometimes there are grandchildren. So what I'd really like to do in this time is stand over here and show pictures of my grandchildren, but we'll do that later if, if you're interested. Anyway, how many of you had a best friend growing up? Neil, who was your best friend growing up? Rick. Rick. Why, why was Rick your best friend? I had a lot of similar interests, and he was just a loyal guy. Ah, you had things in common. He was loyal. That's awesome. So I'm the fifth of ten kids, and uh, you would think I had a lot of friends growing up. I did. My siblings were kind of my friends, but I had this idea that friendship and friends were like people who you were with 24-7. So I had these two imaginary friends, Janie and Sargana, and we hung out all the time, and I talked to them all the time. I think my parents thought I was a little bit crazy. But anyway, um, so uh, friendships are really important. And uh, let's see what the Lord has to teach us about community and uh, healthy friendships. Father, thank you so much for this time together. Uh, as we reflect on the importance of relationships in our lives, we just ask, Lord, that our focus would be on you and the things you want to do in our hearts to make us the kind of people that bring honor and glory to you, um, regardless of the kinds of people that we're relating to, uh, regardless of where we find ourselves in friendships and relationships. We lift up our time to you. May your name be honored and glorified in our hearts. In your name we pray. Amen. So we're in the, in the early 70s, a struggling heavyweight boxer in his mid-30s from Bayonne, New Jersey, stepped into the ring with the reigning, with the reigning world champion, Muhammad Ali. Chuck Wepner had been dubbed the Bayonne Bleeder because of the amount of blood that got splattered on the sportscasters' leisure suits during his fights. And um, he was uh, dubbed the uh, Great White No Hoper in this fight with Muhammad Ali, but he managed to go just 19 seconds shy of staying in the ring with Ali for the full 15 rounds. Now, Muhammad Ali was the self-proclaimed greatest and probably one of the most influential sports figures of the 20th century, but you've probably never heard about Chuck Wepner. So the fight was, um, was um, screened on theaters live in Los Angeles, and there was a young struggling actor in the audience. He watched the film, he was inspired, he went home and hammered out a script on his um, typewriter, and a billion and a half dollars worth of movies later, the Rocky franchise is still going strong. Creed Three, I think, is due out next year, right? And how many of us have run up a set of stairs and gone, da da da, you know? <laughs> You know how that goes. But we, uh, you know, the, so the storyline, we love the story of the underdog and all of that. But there's another storyline that runs through the Rocky stories, and it's the transformational nature of the relationships that these people find themselves in and the different people and the impact they have on their lives. That's what we're going to talk about a little bit today. So uh, we throw around this word community a lot in Christian circles. But uh, I don't think sometimes we really stop to think what it really means. What's, what's really involved in that? When you hear that word, what does that mean to you? Anybody have any thoughts? Okay. 
Okay, similar trajectory. That's good. I've got a support system. Support system. Good. People you're surrounded with a particular stage in life. Sure. So community is, it's evolving. It's always changing. Yeah. Anybody ever watch the community sitcom about the people yeah. at Greendale go? <laughs> okay. So you've got an incredibly diverse group of people. And basically, they, the only thing they have in common is they're trying to survive. <laughs> And, uh, and get out alive. But they're together. If you look up community in Merriam-Webster's dictionary, basically you get the idea that this is people with a common purpose, something in common. They're united with some kind of uh, similar trajectory, similar set of goals. Let's look at what scripture says about defines early community. Carson, can you read Acts 2, 42 through 47 for us? And they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching. Uh, the breaking of bread and prayer. And awe came upon every soul, and many wonders and signs were being done with the apostles. And all who believed were together and had things in common. And they were selling their possessions and belongings, and distributing the proceeds to all, as any had need. And day by day, attending the temple together and breaking bread in their homes, they received the food with glad and generous hearts, praising God and having, and having favor with all the people. The Lord added to them day by day those who were being saved. So Acts 2, 42 to 47, this early group of people, if we look back earlier in uh, Acts 2, in verse 9, <clears throat> it says they were Parthians, Medes, Elamites, residents of Mesopotamia, Judea, Cappadocia, Pontus, Asia, Phrygia, Pamphylia, Egypt, and parts of Libya near Cyrene, visitors from Rome, both Jews and converts to Judaism, Cretans and Arabs, people from all over the known world. And what are they doing together in this passage that Carson just read? What are they doing? What, what characterizes their community? They're yeah, praising God. God's glory is the center of their lives. What else do you notice about them? They're eating together. They're doing life together. Anything else? Daily, right? Daily. Yeah. You don't get the feeling this is relationship by appointment, do you? They're devoting themselves to learning, to the apostles' teaching. They're praying together. And they're making sure that nobody's in need. So they're very others-centered. So what's the purpose of community? And uh, I think the, um, what's happening here in the book of Acts hasn't changed. Maybe we don't eat all our meals together. I think it is important that we look at our stuff and make sure that we're not living in excess while our brother or sister are in need. I um, think we're having opportunities to devote ourselves to teaching, um, coming to this conference, Moments of prayer, times of prayer that are set aside in the schedule, that's so incredibly important, keeping Christ at the center. 
We have those opportunities. So community, the purpose of community for our, the purpose of our discussion is for us to be transformed into the likeness of Jesus. But when we look at the end of Acts 2, 42 through 47, in verse 47, they are adding to their number daily those who are being saved. So the purpose of their community, they are with one another, they are with the Lord for the purpose of the world. So what community is not, is community is not sameness. It's not a place where we come together for the sake of ourselves. We come together in community for the sake of the world. And if you take nothing else away from this workshop, it would be this little illustration with your hands. This is community. We come together for the sake of the world. This is tribe, where we come together for the sake of ourselves. You guys hear about who's your tribe? Who's in your tribe? The purpose of tribe is to define yourself by who's not part of you. The purpose of community is to define yourself by who's not part of you yet. You're welcoming, your community exists to include those who aren't part of your community yet. Okay, so who do you want? In this corner, in boxing, in Rocky, he's got his guys in his corner. Uh, Paul uses some boxing metaphors. And uh, so who's, who do you need in your community? And um, let's see, Tyler, can you read 1 Corinthians 11.1? 1? Sure, sure. Communicate me, and then also Christ. Okay, so Paul's saying, I'm following hard after Jesus. You follow my example and together we're going to follow Jesus. In our lives, we need coaches, trainers, mentors, disciples, teachers, whatever you want to call those people who are a little bit further ahead of you down the road. So when I went to Nigeria, I walked into a mentoring gold mine. I was 24 years old and the youngest missionary on our team at our hospital was 21 years older than me. And she was younger than everybody else. These were people who had walked with Jesus for decades. They had suffered. They had done costly things. They loved Jesus and had paid a price to bring his glory, to fill the earth with the knowledge of the glory of the Lord. And they were awesome. And one of them was named Mary Evelyn Fredenberg. And Mev, had been in Nigeria for almost 40 years. She had gone there when she was 24 as a single woman. She had ridden on a ship. There was no plane flight. She had been by herself, this young single woman, all alone in whatever place she was needed in the country by the mission as they, she was one of their earlier workers in the area. So she's teaching all by herself in a boys' school, or she's running a clinic in a leper colony somewhere else. She's doing all these things by herself. She's amazing. I wish I had enough stuff written down to write her biography. She's one of those people you'd want her biography on the book table. But awesome, I got to be around this woman for two years 
and learn from her and grow from her life. And you need those kind of people in your life. You can find them in books, in biographies, that people can speak into your life, but you also need mentors who see you face to face, who are local. But the, one of the qualities of a mentor is, Mev would have never said, oh yes, Emily came to Eku and I mentored her. She never would have said that. Because one of the qualities of a good mentor is they have an ounce of humility. So they're not gonna come up to you and say, hey, would you like to learn from my life? Yeah. <laughs> Stay away from those people. They've got ego issues. Um, so you, you take the initiative. You see someone. You recognize your need to grow in your faith. And you pursue a relationship. Would, would you mind? You pursue one of your staff, one of your older students in your ministry. Would you mind if I took you out to coffee? I have some questions for you. And then when you sit down with them, you can say things like, you know what? I don't know what I don't know, so I don't even know what questions to ask you. But I would like to follow Jesus. What help can you give me? That's totally appropriate. And after the person has fallen out, has recovered from their dead faint on the floor because they've run into an incredibly teachable individual, you'll have an awesome relationship. Trust me. It'll be good. You have to be available to them. You have to be teachable and you have to share your life. Don't be somebody living over here in your house or your residence hall, being one person and then meeting up with your mentor once a week because you can fake anybody out. A lot of us are really good at it. So you have to be transparent with your life if that's gonna be effective help for you. Okay, uh, Kevin, can you read Ephesians 4.15? Is that who I asked to read Ephesians? Okay, Justin, I'm sorry. So sorry. Ephesians 4, 15. So Paul has just uh, finished expounding on all these different spiritual gifts, and then he wraps it up by saying, we need to speak the truth in love. When Abraham Lincoln was elected president of the United States, the United States was falling apart. He actually chose cabinet members who had opposed him in his bid to become president. He chose people who not only did like, didn't like him, they didn't like each other. But one of the reasons they were effective is they had no difficulty speaking what they thought was best for the country to one another. They were called the team of rivals. Um, awesome book, if you ever wanna read something good. Um, <clears throat> but we need those people in our lives who will tell us the truth. In Acts 9, we read the story of um, Paul's conversion. And, uh, you know, it's kind of like Paul converting to Christianity is like if Osama bin Laden had become a Christian and had shown up at your challenge meeting. I'd just like to share the word with the students. And Neil's like, I don't think so. <laughs> Not today, uh, <laughs> where are the Navy SEALs? And um, that's, the kind of, that's the kind of activity Paul was involved in. But he meets up with this guy Barnabas who says, oh, hey, guys, he's legit. He introduces him to the community. Paul has ministry and uh, co-labors with the church in Jerusalem. But if you move down to Acts 15, 
Paul and Barnabas are getting ready to go out and check up on all the churches that they had planted in their early missionary journey. And uh, Barnabas, he's that kind of guy. He, he believes in giving people a chance. So this young guy, John Mark, he wants to take him with him. He had initially gone out with them the first time. We don't know why John Mark didn't finish the trip. People have all different kinds of speculation, but he didn't. And so Paul's like, yeah, no, not that guy. Barnabas says, yes, this guy. And they have a conflict. Barnabas is trying to speak truth. Paul's trying to speak truth. They have a conflict. Sometimes speaking truth becomes a point of contention. But what's really encouraging is when we read in 2 Timothy, at the end of Paul's life in 2 Timothy 4, Paul asks for John Mark to come. We're going to read those verses a little bit later. But Paul asked for this very guy that he didn't believe in, that Barnabas believed in. And so sometimes speaking truth into people's lives can be dicey. One of the people who speaks truth into my life is my husband, Kevin. He's really good at it. And I take it really well later. Anyway, no. I know that he's committed to me that we have the kind of relationship where when he speaks, I can listen. My younger sister is the same way. She doesn't say a lot, but when she says stuff, you listen because it's, it's true. She speaks the truth. We need people like that. Um, 2 Timothy 4, 9 through 13. That's out of line. There you go. Okay. So it says, personal instructions. Do your best to come to me soon for Demas, in love with his friend has deserted me and gone to Thessalonica. Crescens has gone to Galatia, Titus to Dalmatia. Luke alone is with me, yet Mark and bring him with you, for he is very useful to me for ministry. Well, excuse me, they're a little tough. Press, I said to Ephesus, when you come bring folk that I left with Carpus at Troas, also the books, and above all of the portraits. I'm sorry for my butchering. It's perfectly all right. Sometimes that feels like a kid has texted his mom and said, Mom, these are things I forgot to bring to school today. Could you bring them? But Paul is asking Timothy to, to bring these things with him and bring me John Mark, this guy, and bring this guy. Only Luke's with I need my guys around me. You need this third group of people you need in your community are your fellow strugglers. They're where you are. They're kind of at your same place. And uh, they're your ride or die people. These are your regulars. And uh, interestingly enough, we'll talk about another category of kind of person, but uh, Paul and Timothy's relationship evolved. Obviously, Paul's relationship with John Mark evolved. These are the people he wants with him in his last moments. These are your people that laugh with you, they cry with you, you laugh with them, you cry with them. In the early 1930s in a residence hall at Oxford, a group of students and other young men began what would become a two decade long regular meeting. They gathered to read aloud and critique literature of the day, that of others and some of their own. Dubbed the Inklings, they included C.S. Lewis and his older brother Warren, J.R.R. Tolkien and sometimes his son Christopher, Lewis's physician, Robert Harvard, philosopher and author, Owen Barfield, who was actually instrumental in Lewis's coming to Christ, and uh, the academic Hugo Dyson, who was known to dislike the Lord of the Rings. 
Once there's a story told that he was lying on a couch in the room, just writhing like he was in terrible pain, going, oh no, no more owls. So um, eventually Tolkien gave up reading his stories to this group altogether. But one of his characters, I think, really uh, exemplifies what we're talking about with these kind of fellow strugglers, people who really are in it with us. Frodo says, go back, Sam. I'm going to Mordor alone. Sam says, of course you are, and I'm going with you. Frodo, you can't swim, Sam. Sam jumps in water. Frodo rescues Sam, puts him in the boat. And Samwise Gamgee, my favorite character, says, I made a promise, Mr. Frodo, a promise. Don't you leave him, Samwise Gamgee, and I don't mean to. In 1989, a couple young women were living with us for the summer, and uh, that was the time when my dad was diagnosed with cancer. And uh, the phone call came, and Marcy, one of the girls, was there with me, and uh, my parents kind of wanted me to manage my dad's um, health care. And uh, so I'm getting all this information, and she's there, so supportive, not knowing that six months later, her parents would be in a car accident and her mother would pass away at the scene of the accident. Her father lived for a couple more days and I slept on the floor of the ICU waiting room with Marcy and her sister. You know, when, Marcy, when Kevin and I moved to Michigan six months after that, Marcy began writing me letters. She wrote me a letter every week for the first year that we were in Michigan. We've been in Michigan for 32 years, and probably there have been one, maybe two months that I've not gotten a handwritten letter from my friend Marcy Schmidt. 32 years worth of letters. That's a write or die friend, and you need them and choose them wisely. Okay. Um, Let's see. Samuel, 2 Timothy 2 2. And when you have heard from me in the presence of many witnesses, entrust the faithful men who will be able to teach others also. So Paul's telling Timothy, his Padawan, <clears throat> these are, you know, the things that I've done with you, you do those with other people who then can help other people. So who are the people in your community that you are trying to encourage in their faith? There's a question I ask myself regularly, is am I a cistern or am I a hose, flowing stream, waterfall, whatever? If we're a cistern, we're just taking. I'm, I'm gonna get all the information. I, I want people pouring into my life. It's all about me, it's all about me. What happens to water that sits in a cistern? It goes back, it starts to stink. like. Not doesn't take all that much time. It gets a film on the top, it gets moldy, it gets nasty, all the stuff that's in it starts to grow and multiply, it's nasty. But water from a flowing stream is pure, it's clear. Don't be a cistern, be let, not, not that you let stuff just slide on by, but you're taking in and then you're giving out to other people. It's not about you, it's this, it's about other people. <clears throat> 
So um, some of my uh, dearest ride-or-die people are people that were girls I met when they were freshmen in college. My friend Marcy was in a Bible study I led when she was a junior, I think, in college. And uh, those people, so those relationships, they evolve, they change. And uh, those people have become so dear. My friend Mev that I talked about earlier, so uh, she was not my supervisor when I was a journeyman. A woman named Jackie was my supervisor, and Jackie had a 17-year-old daughter. And uh, Jackie's daughter, Linda, and I got to be, we got to be pretty tight. We were buddies. And uh, in January of 19, uh, 19, of 2019, the four of us got together in Kentucky at Mev's house. Mev is 96 and she's blind and she's hosting this gathering of the four of us. And we had such incredible fellowship. The, you know, we're from Mev to Linda over 40 years separated in age and you never would have thought it. Just such a rich time. And here's this 96-year-old blind woman who lives independently, leads Bible studies saying, I get so frustrated with the women in these studies. They just want to pray for people who are sick. Don't they know what's going on in the world? And then she starts asking us about what we think about all these different world events. I mean, okay, yes. So these, these are the people, this is what can happen when you have people in your life that you nurture these relationships over the years. Neil, I'm sure you have people in your life that have come through your ministry and now you're just the dearest of friends with. Yeah, yeah, it's, it's so true. It's like, you know, it's like my husband. Now he works for a guy that he discipled when the guy was a student. The guy has become his boss, you know. It's the great reversal, we call it. <laughs> okay, Proverbs 17, 22. Who's got that one? McKinsey. Okay, you need people in your community who make you laugh. And I'm not talking about people who have a sarcastic, biting humor that has jokes at other people's expense. I'm not talking about that. I'm talking about people that really make you laugh in the best way. So I have a good friend, um, or I guess to preempt that, sometimes in our friendships, in our relationships, we can get so, take ourselves so seriously, you know? He didn't say hello to me. I wonder if there's an offense. I wonder what happened. You know, maybe the guy was just preoccupied. Maybe he's a space cadet and he didn't even see you, but we want to unpack. Ooh, and how, do, how does this deal with my wounding? And I'm not talking about, I'm not saying that dealing with our wounds and facing our wounds is not important and that's not an important element of community. It is. These are what people in your uh, community are to walk with you through those difficult things. But if we're so, if we take ourselves so incredibly seriously that there's no joy, there's no laughter, we need to rethink the way we're relating to one another. One of my dearest friends, her name is Leanne, and uh, Leanne and her husband several years ago went through a terrible crisis in their marriage phone calls from their children asking us to please come over and intervene and 
just, it was such a hard, hard time. They are still married. There was community that came around them in various ways, but that was a hard, hard time. Um, there was a time Kevin was in China on a mission trip. I was pregnant. There were problems. I was having a miscarriage. I had five little kids sleeping in the house, and it was Leanne who was there. So Leanne and I have been through some tough things together, but nobody can make me laugh like Leanne. Do you have friends who, when you're having a garage sale and you walk out to set things up, there's toxic waste, caution tape, across your yard, and a toilet caution with a teddy bear sitting on it? This is my friend Leanne. Well, you know, the good thing about friends who make you laugh is I came from a family of practical jokers and I don't do, they never work for me, so I just don't do that sort of thing. So one day I saw Leanne's car in the uh, parking lot of the grocery store and she likes to go in the grocery store, sit down in a little cafe, have a glass of coffee and look at the ad and she spends hours there. I don't understand this. So I put a note on her car that said, you know, parking lot rental has been assessed because your car has been in this spot for too long, payable at aisle six. Thank you for shopping at Meyer. So it was kind of rainy and stuff and I didn't think anything of it and I just left. and. And uh, nothing happens. She doesn't call me or anything. And, and so then a few days later, she called me and she said, and she, when we're chatting and she had a question for me. And I said, oh, by the way, were you at Meyer the other day? Silence. It was you. <laughs> I said, well, of course it was me. Who did you think? She said, do you know what happened? I said, well, I put a piece of paper on your windshield and whatever. She goes, no. I told Stephen, her middle school son at the time, Stephen, what is that piece of paper? I don't know, Mom. It says something about parking lot rental fee payable at aisle six. I don't know. I don't, what? I spend a lot of money at this store. And she drove home and she called customer service at the store. <laughs> what is going on? And they're like, oh, ma'am, ma'am. I'm, I'm, they sent their parking lot cart attendants out to the parking lot to check all the cars in the rain to make sure that there were not massive numbers of... <laughs> I felt, I was like, I can't believe this. <laughs> to this day, the Meyer parking lot story. You need those kind of people in your life, so you don't take life so seriously. Okay, Exodus 17... 8 through 13. Donovan, can you read us that? Israel prevailed on every burdensome committed to Moses. But Moses began to be weary, so he took a stone and put it under him, and he sat on it. While Aaron went on and held his hand, one arm, uh, one side, and the other on the side. So his hand didn't stay up until his own bed was in. So, we, what's happening here is um, 
the Amalekites and the Israelites are having a conflict. And as long as Moses holds up his staff, the Israelites are winning, but his arms get tired. And so Aaron and her, two of his friends, he sits down on a rock and one holds up one arm, the other one holds up the other arm, and Israel wins. Who are the people who are holding up your arms? Who's your cheering squad? Who prays for you? You know, Kevin and I have um, been in campus ministry for almost 40 years, and uh, during that time, we've raised our support. We have a support team of people who not only give very generously, but they also pray for us. And they also do things like call us and say, how are you guys doing? How are you really doing? You know, we're going to be in Southern Ohio, which isn't really all that close to us or on their way. So we're going to stop and see you because we're worried about you. Are you guys doing okay? They do that. They check up on us. They, they love us. When I went to Nigeria, I had done a community health rotation in my um, nursing course. And I had uh, two little ladies. They were a mother-daughter, Nellie and Verla, that I took care of. And uh, they knew I was going to Nigeria. And uh, so they said, oh, honey, we will pray for you every day. And when I came back, I went to visit them. Oh, you made it back. We prayed for you. And just the gift that they were in my life. And, uh, you know, you have parents, aunts and uncles, grandparents, maybe older men and women in your church. It would mean the world to them if you approached them and said, I have these exams coming up. This is the time when they're taking, would you pray for me? I'd really appreciate that. Because sometimes people who are older and the older I get, the more I feel what they feel. I never understood this before, but they want, what do I have to offer? What do I want? You know, it's the young people that they, I can't relate. I'm just, you know, what, what do I have to offer? They are your prayer warriors. They are people who spend hours in the presence of Jesus. And for to have someone approach them and ask that, I've got five grandchildren, and I love praying for them. And I hope the day comes when they'll call me and they'll say, Grammy, the test of it is at 1015. Would you pray for me? That we'd have that kind of relationship. We need those people in our lives. All right, Mark 4, 14 through 19. Thank you. You did an awesome job. And I told you the wrong verse. <laughs> That's okay. 
that's okay. Uh, that's also, you need people who will sow the word in your life. Totally, totally. But uh, if you turn back to Mark 3, 13 through 19, <clears throat> Jesus says, Jesus went up on a mountainside and called to him those he wanted, and they came to him. He appointed 12, designating them apostles that they might be with him and that he might send them out to preach and to have authority to drive out demons. These are the 12 he appointed, Simon to whom he gave the name Peter, James son of Zebedee and his brother John, to whom he gave the name Boandrusis, which means son, sons of thunder, Andrew, Philip, Bartholomew, Matthew, Thomas, James son of Alphaeus, Thaddeus, Simon the Zealot, and Judas Iscariot who betrayed him. Now, if you know anything about first century Palestine, you know that putting a tax collector Matthew and Simon the Zealot at the same table would be like putting a member of Al-Qaeda and a Navy SEAL. These people had no love for one another whatsoever. They were sworn enemies. Somebody who is Jewish and in the pockets of the Romans, ripping off his own people, totally not acceptable to Simon the Zealot who just wants the Romans taken out. But Jesus has them all at the same table. You need people in your life who disagree with you. It's too easy for us to surround ourselves with people who think like us, who agree with us about everything, and then our community becomes the algorithm on social media that just feeds you more and more articles of what you already think. That doesn't help us grow. Echo chambers are not a healthy thing. You need people. If you're a follower of Jesus, do you have friends who are Muslim, who are atheists, who are Buddhists, who are nuns, who are duns, people who are not where you are, who you, and not to spar with them, not to argue, but so you can learn, so you can understand what, how can I understand you? How can I love you, even though we disagree? If you're a Democrat, you need Republican friends. If you're a Republican, you need Democrat friends. You, and again, not to spar with each other, not to argue for the sake of argument, but to try to understand where other people are coming from and know the story of how they got to where they are with the perspectives that they have. You need that. I have a friend, who uh, Jennifer, who invited me to uh, a book group that her friend Lynn was leading. And the purpose of this group was to have women who came from all across the spectrum of religious beliefs to understand one another. And uh, it, was, it was interesting. There were people from all, all different perspectives. And uh, so we're discussing Christianity one night and uh, the topic of communion of the Lord's Supper came up. And one woman, one woman, well, I think that's cannibalistic because they talk about eating the flesh and drinking the blood. Everybody's got all these different perspectives. And then they look at me and they will, you know, well, you're a Christian, what do you think? And so I start talking about the purpose of the Lord's Supper is to remember Christ's death in our place and his resurrection, his giving his body and the blood, his blood shed for 
the cleansing of our sin. And he said, and it's also a time when believers examine their lives and examine their relationships with one another to see if our relationships are right. And we purpose not to take the wine and the bread, the juice and the bread, until our relation, until we've reached out and tried to have be in right relationships with people. And when I said that, I thought their eyes were going to pop out of their heads. They said, we've never heard that. Be- we've never heard of that before. I said, well, that, well, that's what the Bible teaches. Really? That must take hours. <laughs> or do you do it real regularly? I thought, yeah, it should take hours because we should take it that seriously. But it was so helpful to be in this group of women who had such different perspectives to learn and to grow from them. Okay, there's some people you don't want in your corner. You want to excuse these people. Um, 1 Corinthians 15, 33. Okay, or uh, other versions say bad company corrupts good character. There are people you want to excuse from your corner. The top of that list are all your fantasy friends. Those who are exist in pornography, in romance novels, in unreality TV, whatever. Excuse those people from your corner. You don't need them in your life. Um, same is true with social media vortexes. Um, people who are possessive, controlling, manipulative, disrespectful, abusive, you respectfully excuse them from your corner. Celebrities, other people that you idolize. um, Nate is doing a fabulous job with calling those things out in our hearts because that place belongs only to Jesus, only to Jesus. The bad boyfriend, good bad boyfriend, bad girlfriend uh, combo. Someone who's abusive, disrespectful, not interested in following Jesus. These are relationships that we need to excuse from our corner. There's two more kinds of people. Romans 12, 1 through 3. Another kind of person you need to have a relationship with. So you need to have a relationship with yourself. A lot of us have friendships with a lot of other a lot of people, but we don't know ourselves. We don't have a relationship with ourselves. And one thing that's really helpful to practice that is to have a time in the day when you you examine what was my what was my life like today? Who was I today? Because if we do that on a regular basis, we become to we be, Come acquainted with ourselves instead of who we hope we are. We become acquainted with who we really are. 500 years ago, Ignatius 
uh, was had just been wounded in battle and spent several months recuperating. And during that time is when he really came to a personal relationship with Jesus Christ. And in that time, he um, kind of came up with a practice that he began to do daily that believers have been doing for the last 500 years. And uh, at the end of the day, just to examine themselves, God, who was I today? What joys did I experience today that you showed up and I have something to that I in, experienced your joy? Lord, where did I miss the mark today? My grandson Jude is four years old and uh, he got in the car. His dad picked him up from preschool the other day and my daughter called me and Jude got in the car and said, I'm so glad, Dad, I didn't sin at school at all today. You know, Jude, he's taking stock of his life and he didn't sin at school that day. Oh, that all of us could say so. Um, but we, we review our day. What happened today? Who was I? Where did I show up in godly ways? Where did I show up as a false person? I wasn't who I really need to be or who I really am. Where did I experience the grace of God today that I have much to be grateful for? And we make a practice of daily gratitude. Those are ways that we can become um, acquainted with ourselves. And the last is certainly not the least because the one guarantee that every relationship, the best mentor, the best spouse, the best kids, the best grandkids, the best friends, the best ride or die people, the best people you disagree with, the best everybody yourself, the one guarantee you can take to the bank from all of it is they will disappoint you. All of them, all of us, everybody. Because that place is reserved only for the one who owns you the one who made you, Jesus. And he will not disappoint. He is the center of healthy community and relationships. So I'm gonna pray and then we're gonna have a, we've got a few minutes for some questions. If you guys have any questions? Lord Jesus, sometimes we come to you and we don't even know what to say. Or we have something composed in our head to say to you, and then it just gets all muddled in our minds. And we forget that talking to you is like talking. It is talking to the person who really doesn't care what our words sound like. It's talking to the person who owns us and knows us best, who actually imprinted his image upon us. And so, Lord, we pray that as we examine the relationships we have in our lives and who we need to be to show up in community for other people, may we first and foremost commit ourselves to being with you that we might be transformed by you to become like you for the sake of the world. Thank you so much, Jesus for your incredible grace to us. In your name we pray, amen. So does anybody have any questions that you, that popped into your head? Something I said that you really disagree with and you'd like to argue about, well, 
You can take that up with somebody else. No. <laughs> yes. Um, I'm curious, how much of this would you say are things where particular people have a different personality for a particular reason, so they follow those, versus like these are categories that people can follow in one sure 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 that's 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 a great question so how do you how do you not try to be all things to all people or you're not or um how do i not cater well i'm this so i can't be that Exact kind of is that what you're saying? A little bit close enough. So people are these things are going to overlap. I mean, my husband is my ride or die friend to the end. He also is a truth speaker in my life. Uh, people, one thing you don't want is you don't want one person trying to. You're trying to. Okay, well, Kevin, he teaches me. He speaks truth to me. We disagree about things. Why? He's all I need. And that happens with people. So you want to make sure that your community is expanded beyond you and one or two other people, because that's, um, but per different personalities will take on, you'll have mentors who are very, uh, it's very clear who's the mentor and who's being mentored. And then you have other mentors who, you're learning tons from them and they have no clue, but you're just making yourself available to their life. That makes sense. Is that helpful? Um, I guess another thing, and I didn't mention this to the first group, but um, there are times when we're expecting community to be for us something that only the professionals in the mental health field can be for us. So don't ever feel like you're betraying your community if you feel like you need to seek help from, and meet with a professional therapist for a period of time. And if you are in a relationship where you're helping someone grow in their life, the, most, the kindest thing you can do is help them connect with a qualified therapist because sometimes people have issues that are outside our control and we need to own, we need to we need to not be the person who oh I can help them when we know that's outside of our realm of expertise. Yes. I have a question about so if you're responsible for the community that Mhm. That's a great, that is a great question. You know, how do we love communities who embrace values that are contradictory to the Bible? Now, if we're going to reach the lost world, we're going to have to do that because that is the characteristic of what the law. That's what it means to be lost is you've conformed to the pattern of the world. So we need to enter into their lives without conforming to that. So um, some examples of that are when I have friends in the LGBT community, 
it's very, they know where I stand, that I adhere to a biblical sexual ethic, but I'm extending friendship to them. I'm trying to have conversations. So help me understand and, oh, you like Star Wars, so do I. It's like, hello, since when is that the sum total? You know, oh, you're same-sex attracted and I'm heterosexual. Let's make that the only thing we talk about. There's a whole lot of other things to talk about. There's a whole lot of other ways and we can disagree on some real fundamental things, but we can build a friendship that is centered around other things and we just continue to choose to walk alongside people in friendship without, and, and that's something that Nate alluded to as well, is we've decided, or who, whoever the great they are that decide these things, I don't know who they are, um, they've decided that if you disagree with someone, you hate them. Well, what, what I found to be helpful in, uh, with friends that I disagree with on a lot of issues is, yes, I disagree with you and I don't affirm your choice. I don't think you affirm my choice either. And I'll go, oh, definitely not. I say, yeah, we're a mutual non-affirmation society. So let's just be friends. And let's just, let's just recognize that and call it what it is instead of, well, cause then we start moving and we give the impression that we affirm something that we don't. And we don't, we don't want to do that because that's duplicitous. That's disrespectful. Of, I mean, that was the whole point of this group of women were one of our common values in the book we were reading. Uh, it was called God is Not One by Stephen Prothero. It's an excellent book. He says, this idea that all religions are ladders going up the same mountain is totally disrespectful. The Buddhist does not want to know the triune God of the Bible. So if I'm going to respect my Buddhist friend, I'm not going to say, oh, you know, we're all the same, because we're not. I don't know if that's helpful to you. Does anybody else have any questions, any thoughts? Yes, Victor. You mentioned um, parents' confidence, and when you that's a great question. I think so much of it has to do with the attitude of a mentor. So you're seeking, um, so you're a senior and, uh, for example, and you, come to challenge and there's a bunch of freshmen and you think, uh, I love freshmen. <clears throat> and, uh, and you think, you know, I, here's Joe over here, man, he looks, he looks like he could use a friend and really mentoring someone is choosing to be a really good friend. And so you reach out in friendship and, uh, that's different than, Oh, there's Joe. I'm ahead of Joe. Let me go bless Joe with my vast storehouse of wisdom. So much of it has to do with attitude. Yes. Um, what is your advice for 
and then we became like transition stages or that we like we did college and we became kind of you know the structure of Christian challenge or um like starting a job and entering into a space that's unfamiliar like how would you suggest like starting to build your community while also like pouring into friendships that you've already built even if they're not as like easily accessible that is a great question. You guys are all going to face that in some way or another. And, um, you know, the, the sociologists and psychologists talk about Jesus choosing 12, that you can really only manage 12 significant relationships at a time. Three of those will be deep. Only one of them will be intimate and close. That'll be or to that level. So we have Peter. Peter, James, and John, and then we have the 12. And for some reason, we're always trying to pack more people in our relational capacity. So one thing is some of those relationships that maybe are your fellow strugglers, your people who are at your place, those healthy relationships are places where those people will open up a relational slot for you to fill with somebody else if those relationships are healthy they'll realize, okay, we're not going to be able to get the amount of time that we have anymore. I mean, most of my relationships like that are, none of them live close to me. And they're the expectation. It's what I love about my friend Marcy. You, I, I can't stand up here and say, I wrote to her every month for 32 years, because I didn't. But she's, she's opened up a slot. She realizes that my work is relationship oriented. And so she frees me up. So, so you, you have honest conversations with people who are your people now. As I move into this, I love you. I care about you, but I'm moving into a new season. And because community is about who's not part of the body yet, we open up slots for, one, for each other to have more space. And I think as you move into the workplace, you see the importance of community in your work. Who are, who are the people that I can be an encouragement to? Who are the people that I can learn from in my job? And as you go into a local church, sometimes we're used to an environment of challenge. You know, Neil has built this utopia where you walk in and everybody's like, we want to love you. Oh, yes. <laughs> and, uh, and then we graduate and we get involved and we move to someplace else and we get involved in the local church and we're like, where's all the people who want to love me? <laughs> Nobody's coming up and wanting to love me. Oh, but the way to, to move into some of those relationships in a local church is so you get to, you go to their things, you know, so they're having a thing, I don't know, some kind of event. And you go, you begin to observe some people's lives. You go to a Sunday school class that's maybe not people, if your church has those, it's maybe not people in your same demographic. Maybe they're older. And uh, you, uh, you meet some people. And then you call them up and you reach out and build some relationships. Or you find out, oh, this lady, she seemed really neat. And oh, she's serving in the nursery on such and such Sunday. I'm going to sign up for that same Sunday and get to know her in the nursery. And we do, so we kind of fit into that different kind of structure so that we're keeping our community 
diverse and open. Does that, does that help you? Does that make sense? Okay, I, 